I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. While Egan Bernal clocked up his second Grand Tour win of his career, some of the younger Ineos Grenadiers riders, yes, even younger than Bernal, have made a pretty promising start to their seasons. We talked to one of them. Ethan Hayter, and we hear about the men who paint out the penises on the route of the Tour de France. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. We have Ineos Grenadiers rising star Ethan Hayter on soon, but first, Rouleur Managing Editor Ian Cleverly is here. Ian, issue 104 is on its way. What can we look forward to? Uh, indeed, what can we look forward to? Um, our star man for the issue is uh, Tadej Bogacar. Annie McGrath made the uh, very sensible uh, move of um, talking to his parents, amongst many other people, um, who provided, and he probably wouldn't, uh, probably wouldn't thank them for this, um, provided uh, some fantastic shots from when he was a kid, including today on a unicycle. Now, I know everybody goes on about how, oh, the, you know, the, this rider was a mountain biker and that's why they have such great handling skills back in the day. Uh, I don't think many can say they rode a unicycle. I got to, I got to interview a musician because, uh, you know, I just thought to make a change from science. This guy called Jan Tiersen. The pianist. Yes, indeed. I thankfully found somebody who's actually heard of the guy. Um, yes, now, everybody will know him as the, the guy who um, composed the soundtrack for the film Amelie, which his publicist uh, said to me uh, as an advisory note right at the end of the conversation. Oh, if you're going to ask him about Amelie, maybe leave it till right at the end. So I thought, ah, okay, I know what she's getting at there. So it's a bit like asking Eddie Merckx, you know, for 50 years in a row, what was it, how did it feel to win the Tour de France? You know, so he's obviously got totally sick of talking about it. So I didn't ask about that, but um, he loves cycling. He's done tours by bike. I mean, doing extraordinary mileages as well. He was, he was, when he was in the States, he was doing like 100K before even doing a gig. I was saying, uh, well, you, didn't you arrive feeling kind of, you know, empty and exhausted but no but um he, he has a great plan that he wants to do it, it, it's currently a sort of a slightly pie in the sky dream but he's he's a very proud breton and very proud of sort of the whole celtic nations uh notion he wants to do a tour that links all the celtic nations okay so starting in Brittany, and then going cornwall wales ireland scotland whilst playing gigs 
uh, interesting man and uh, did enjoy listening to lots of his music. Okay, look forward to that. Um, Ruler Online, also a tremendous opportunity to shop and spend money. The world's best cycling brands all in one place. Um, anything new and noteworthy arriving there? Eminently, the the Ruler kit. Um, this this actually started off as a design that Miles put together for our, our Zwift, the, the Ruler Zwift rides. And uh, we had so many people going, oh, where can I get that jersey? <laughs> That we've um, we've refined it and it's 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 on its way. Should be with us in the next couple of weeks. If you're interested, then do sign up to the Ruler newsletter at ruler.cc, and um, then you'll hear about it first. Because I think I think the uh, the buzzword is capsule collection. Uh, I that means it won't be around very long. Uh, do you know what I mean? We're not going to we're not be doing thousands of them. So. Um, do sign up for the newsletter and it'll be along in the next couple of weeks. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Ineos Grenadiers are having a pretty good season so far. Uh, not least, of course, with Egan Bernal's emphatic win at the Giro. Elsewhere, young British rider Ethan Hayter has been demonstrating that he's much more than just a world-class track pursuit rider. A stage win at Copier-Bartoli, another at the Tour of the Algarve, two stages and the green jersey at the Ruta del Sol, where he also wore the leader's jersey for a day. Yeah, the last month's been a bit bit of a surprise, to be honest. I wouldn't have expected wouldn't have expected that before, but it's just it's been really good, yeah. And the Ruta del Sol, uh, that last stage which you won, you were heading for the line. There was a, a big crash right behind you, wasn't there? What did you see any of that, or were you just focused on the line? Yeah, it was a shame to end the whole race like that. A bit, to be honest, because um, like we had a plan before the stage, we did exactly the plan and kind of pulled it off, which was really nice, but. Yeah, so the wind was like, it's like a slight cross headwind. And because we'd gone really hard over the last climb, there was only 15 of us left or something like that. I let my teammate go a bit out of the last corner because it was like 400 to go or something. But I still went quite early. Impy was like uh, level with me, but in the wind, obviously. And it was like, you know, when you just drag racing each other to the line. And then all of a sudden, I was kind of preparing to lunge and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, they just he just disappeared next to me. I was just a bit shocked, yeah. <laughs> Across the line, I didn't, I didn't celebrate again. Yeah, it's... Bike racing, I guess. I've had a few crashes myself and I'm not sure. I think he drifted over and they both kind of drifted into each other or something. But yeah, I think they're both okay. So what's your role um, with Ineos Grenadiers at the moment? What's the role in the team? Do they think of you as a sort of specialist in any particular area or does it just change from race to race? Um, It kind of changes from race to race. It depends who's at the race and what the plan is there. But also it's just getting experience and finding... What races are good for me if I've not ridden a lot of them before? Yeah, I think I kind of exceeded my own expectations and expectations of the team in the last couple of races, so it's pretty nice. Has it changed the way you're sort of thinking about the future at all and what your sort of role and um, whether you might concentrate on road or track or, or continue doing both or what? A little bit, yeah. I've, I've just really enjoyed the last couple of months, obviously, as you, as you would do. I'm still really hoping to go to the Olympics in the summer on the track um, and just the track. But yeah, I've not really thought massively past that, to be honest, yet. It's been a good start to the year for Ineos Grenadiers as well, hasn't it? Because, you know, past couple of years, people have been saying, well, they're not the team they were. They're not quite as strong as they were. Everywhere they go, they've been looking pretty strong so far. Yeah, I think there's been a bit of, um, I mean, to be honest, they only, it was only last year when they weren't quite so strong. The year before that, they still won the tour, won two at the tour, so... It's always a big, you know, when you're winning, their main goal was the tour every year. And when you're winning it every year, it's a big story when you finally don't win. A bit like um, 
Mercedes in the Formula One yesterday. But yeah, there's been a bit of a change of emphasis on going to some races, not just as preparation, but to win more races as well. Um, and the style of racing, like the way we took it on yesterday, they wouldn't normally do, to be honest, in the past. So yeah, it's been really great to be a part of. The last two years have been really hard for you know, loads of people, for everyone really, but it, it must have been particularly difficult for um, p- people like you who are just starting out in your kind of career in pro cycling and everything was so disrupted. Um, how, how's it been? How's this year in particular been? Um, this year has been a lot better. Last year I was kind of focused on the track and then um, had the lockdown and I had a few injuries along the way and I only did had an okay year in terms of what I did but I only did 15 race days which um, might sound like a fair few but most pros do 60 70 so 15 really wasn't many and yeah it was just it was a hard year for everyone last year obviously I was quite lucky to even get those 15 race days whereas a lot of people didn't get any at all especially in the UK but this year I've got into a much better rhythm had a much better winter and stuff and yeah, it's kind of showing, I guess, now. Have you been doing much on the track? You're based in Manchester, aren't you, when, when you're home? But have you been doing much uh, on the track so far? I did a track race in Ghent, and I was second in the Omnium there. I was a bit rusty and actually a bit tired as well, but that's something to learn from and, like, just need to do a bit more. I hadn't done much track at that stage, and we did some team pursuit and a couple of dress rehearsals. Actually, less. I did them on the Friday. We, we had to... We had to... Uh, someone on the flight back from the track race that we did, tested positive. So I was on Zwift for a few days. And then we went straight into a team pursuit, like full hit out. And they actually went quite well, um, looking ahead to the Olympics. And that was on the Friday. And then I think we started Algarve on Tuesday after that. Yeah, I went from doing team pursuits to winning on the top of a mountain, which was that was part of the reason why it was unexpected, but it was, it was nice. Well, let's take a look back um, briefly at sort of how you got started in cycling because you started at Herne Hill Velodrome in South London and you actually started um, comparatively late compared to some young cyclists, didn't you? Yeah, when it's like the least intimidating place you can go to really, but when you do first go, you are a bit like, oh, everyone here has been doing it for ages and they're all just really good. Yeah, you learn obviously and... You do catch up over time. How old were you when you started then? How old were you when you were for your first race? I think I was 13 or 14. But cycling's a sport where not many people just fall into it. Or it's changing a bit now, but it definitely didn't used to be a sport where you just fall into it. It's usually you're one of your parents cycle and then you start super young. And that was most of the people at Herne Hill at the time. But I think that's definitely changed. And obviously that's um, it's a good thing. You'd have started in the sort of aftermath of 2012, wouldn't you, with the Olympics and Wiggins winning the Tour at that, that time when there was a big rush to get into racing. From what you can see, is there still a real impetus, a real growth in young riders coming through in the UK? I started just around then. The track had actually just been resurfaced, which I think was the end of 2011 or start of 2012. Um, so it was obviously a massive time for cycling in the UK. And there was that big spike, I remember. I'd only just started, obviously, but they went from like 15 people at a session to 50. And uh, it was just crazy. Like they're running out of bikes to give out from the sheds and that kind of thing. But now I think it's more of, there's a lot more people there just consistently. And Herne Hill is just a great place for that kind of um, community environment and 
so much startup. Um, I know because of you know, my connection with Hearn Hill and your club, VC Londra, that when you are in London, you drop down to the track sometimes and give advice still to some of the young riders there. Uh, why has that been important to you? Well, it's kind of a place where you spend so much time you develop almost a bit of a bond with it. And the social side of things was more important than the cycling always, really. Like we'd go down and you'd race track league, but it would also be like a, you wouldn't want to miss track league even if, even if you weren't racing because it was quite a fun few hours on the evening and then the sessions all through the week. So the same, you know, you can almost you could almost do too much if you were uh, really enjoying it because <laughs> you could go down to the track every day. But um, it's just nice to go back and it's funny actually. I went home in between Argave and Roost del Sol for I had basically a week off. Um, and when I went down, people were asking for signatures and stuff. And it was weird because I didn't feel any different to how I had been there. But obviously, everyone sees you on the TV now. And it's um, kind of a strange thing to get your head around. But there are still some uh, talented young riders coming through there, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, there's always VCL, the club I started at, was based there. So most people ride for them. But even the other clubs and stuff, there's always people popping up at national level. But I think even if you're not super talented it's a place where you can um go and really enjoy yourself and you, there's a lot more to cycling and even racing than just winning races and we've learned not to make too many plans at the moment because things keep changing but um what does the rest of the year hopefully hold for you you said earlier on hopefully the olympics this year yeah i kind of need to plan i have a massive plan for after that at the moment i've actually gonna talk to my coach and the team this week i think about getting a bit of a plan in place just so we can have to worry about it then but i mean the nationals are quite late in october so they could be an option and i quite like obviously it depends on how i am after the olympics because some people you know you could come out come out of it super motivated and wanting to have a race or you could come out of it kind of just a bit mentally tired and uh, wanting a holiday so i mean tour britain would be pretty cool I've done it twice now and really enjoyed it both times. And then to do it this year, I've actually got quite a good chance of winning some stuff there. It would be um, really fun. Um, you mentioned the team pursuit. You probably didn't hear, but we had Dan Bigham on uh, the last podcast who was saying that Denmark, who are the team he's working with at the moment, you know, are really strong. They've been working really hard over lockdown on their team pursuits and lots of other teams Um uh, have been as well lots of other countries have been as well what are you hearing what how sort of optimistic are you about team geb and the team pursuit this year i think the team pursuit is actually in a really good place at the moment because in the past it's always kind of denmark have been really good but mainly in the past it's been like a two horse race between australia and uk whereas now there's five countries or six countries that are all um could all win potentially um, which is exciting and good for competition Denmark were obviously the favourites after winning the Worlds the way they did. But we're quite confident. We, we've gone in those dress rehearsals last week. We went pretty quick. Can you tell us what the figures were? Um, we went faster than we've been before. So, um, no, that was that was good. And that was without too much specific prep for a few of us. So we're quite confident. We'll go well. It just depends on what everyone else, you know, like everyone else should step up quite a lot as well it just depends what that is so it'd be a 
one to watch in Tokyo, I think. Well, I hope we do get to see you in Tokyo and uh, fingers crossed for the rest of the season. Uh, fingers crossed for the Olympics. Um, good to talk to you, Ethan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnow, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts with Lacquer. If you want to leave, you can, any time. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. As we said earlier, Ruler Issue 104 will soon be arriving with subscribers. From it, Phil Wright now reads Eraserheads by Jean-Baptiste Moutet. Just like that, a white penis has metamorphosed into a jolly butterfly. With high-vis jackets on their shoulders, two men trace long lines on the tarmac, drawing curves and adding furtive features in a matter of seconds. Intrigued spectators come for a closer look, hands behind their backs. But Patrick Donquisine and Joel Gautrion have no time to step back, appreciate their works of art or chat to the curious onlookers. They jump back in their van and shoot off in a cloud of dust. The duo bear the epithet of superheroes. Les effaceurs. The Eraser Men. Employed by Dublé, the company tasked by ASO with erecting and dismantling the advertising hoardings along the route since 2002, the Eraser Men begin by taking up arms against any unauthorised publicity. Then their battle moves on to all the eye-catching messages that could undermine the image of a popular, child-friendly and harmonious tour, an event with no place for political messages or sexual innuendo. If only these two great French passions were more acceptable, in an event beamed out to 190 countries by 100 different channels. Yet the penis that made its way onto TV screens a few days earlier was like a defeat to Patrick. 
It's 6.30am on the lip of the Col d'Isar, ahead of the day's stage, and this eraser man remembers the fateful moment. Even with the best efforts and will in the world, you can't always manage everything, he says. Nevertheless, there's no question of the same mistake repeating itself on this hotly anticipated mountain stage between Briancon and the summit of the Isar, which, for the first time in its history, will host a stage finish. For Patrick and Joel, the day looked difficult. With 1,030 metres of climbing in the final 14 kilometres and long straights at 10% gradient, the Izar acts like a magnet for paintbrush-wielding fans. Below, in amongst the hairpin bends, some fluorescent green and white is already appearing from beneath the drizzle in the morning mists. Come on, let's go, grunts Patrick after a quick glance at his watch. On this stage, he and his accomplice will drive around 120 kilometres. On the flat, there is less graffiti. Joel, who is making his tour debut, points out, will go as far as 60 kilometres before the finish. Having driven the route in reverse, the two men will then turn around and head back the way they came, tackling the new drawings that have appeared between their two runs. They have to leave this turning point at least 90 minutes before the first vehicles of the publicity caravan, which, according to organisers, are scheduled to arrive on the Col d'Isar at precisely 3.49pm. This mountain stage is a time trial for the Eraser men, one that starts at 7 in the morning. Patrick, all greying hair and square shoulders, takes the wheel. The slender figure of Joël is armed with his Bible, the tall roadbook, which contains the stage details and predicted timetable for each element of the tour at each point up to the finish. Busy with other jobs, a young man in blue, dressed like all the employees of Doublé, sounds a warning to them from behind his wheel. Boys, you're going to see a lot of cocks. Indeed, they are. As the van begins its descent, the penis in all its myriad forms, springs up, no pun intended, as far as the eye can see. Every hundred metres or so, sometimes flying in formation, there are male genitalia, phalluses, cocks, willies, schlongs. For each one, the eraser men hop out in the middle of the road and grab their paint pots. Best case scenario, genitalia, artfully transformed into a butterfly or a bear. If time is pressing, several random brushstrokes are enough to at least render it unrecognisably penile. Meanwhile, the word EPO becomes less obvious as EPQ. Syringes, often accompanying the names of riders, are redrawn as ladders. The words SOS refusier, a call for action on the Mediterranean migrant crisis, are turned into an enigmatic 888. We transform as much as we can, Joel says, before Patrick groans. The black paint, which today has replaced the more traditional white they usually use, is far from satisfactory. The results of their adjustments are less clear. The duo will use more than 350 litres of water-based paint during the whole tour, which is quite something when you consider that, officially speaking, it is illegal to draw on a public highway. 
as stated in Article 322.1 of the French Penal Code. Inscriptions, signs or drawings without prior authorization are punishable by a fine of €3,750 and community service. But bike races turn a blind eye to it. According to legend, it all began in 1936 at the Giro d'Italia, where the supporters of Raphael Di Paco, a rival of Charles Pellissier, became the first to cheer on their hero in this way. In the small hours, 41-year-old Grégory Bou emerged from his camper van. He wrote a nice vive le tour and an inevitable Allez Bardet on the road. But no more. He ran out of paint. This former Pierre Rollin fan understands the benefits of guys like Patrick and Joël. He is not a fan of the graffiti which keeps banging on about doping. We write to encourage the riders not to put them down, he says. A little later, the drizzle turns to steady rain and the two eraser men allow themselves a coffee break in Vars. It's around ten in the morning and they've already covered more than half of the day's route. Patrick is on his seventh tour. His 57 years make him the old man of the Doublé boys in blue. For the remainder of the year he juggles two jobs. One as a barman and another working at an undertaker's. I'm a pool bearer, a master of ceremonies and pool pints, he erupts. Like a good northern man, he was drawn into cycling by Paris-Roubaix where the cobbled sector of auchet les orquis traverses his home commune of Capelle-en-Pavelle. Roubaix is where you really see champions, he adds. Little more than ten minutes later, the dynamic duo is back on the road. On one corner stands a fluorescent green message over ten metres long. Our politicians are gangsters. Patrick can't hide his smile. Now this is real art, he says. Above them, a family watches the merry-go-round. They insist they had nothing to do with it. But we agree with the message. Surely, everybody does, don't they? Further on, the van passes a tent draped in the flags of the CGT trade union. Hulot is a thug. Macron out. Make EDF 100% public, screams the tarmac. The eraser men whip out their brushes and a furious activist tumbles out of the tent. What are you doing? You'll see when you hit retirement, he yells. I'm 57, so it won't be long, Patrick replies. We're just doing our job, that's all. But we've always done this. It's part of the tour. It's our right to express ourselves. Against Macron, at least. Amongst the public, support generally sways towards the CGT. Even if it's unpleasant, everybody should have the right to write what they like, says Madeleine, who is waiting for the race with her family. Fabien Ville, professor of sports science at Lille University and author of the book Tour de France, a media model, compares the eraser men to web moderators, only with a van instead of a mouse. To him, it's no surprise that the ASO want to cover up the blemishes of certain messages written on the road. Sport wants to be apolitical. But it's impossible, he says. Cameras attract the causes that need media coverage and create spaces of protest. As it was on July the 7th, 1982, when local steelworkers held up the tour riders mid-race, provoking the fury of Bernardino. Several days later, 
the 1,300 workers learned of plans to shut the steelworks site the following year. It eventually shut in 1986. As the riders tackle the first category Col de Var, Joel and Patrick are just a few kilometres from the finish line. The crest of the Izar is in sight. The final effort of the day is to assemble the several metre high inflatable polka dot jersey. But the duo can't finish the climb. The publicity caravan has caught them up. They watch Warren Barguil take off in pursuit of Darwin Atapuma from the shoulder of the mountain and take the opportunity to work out their own stage classification. The day's winner? A good 30 pieces of graffiti in support of refugees. The penis came in second place with 18 drawings, but comfortably defended its position at the top of the graffiti GC. With its dozen or so messages, politics snuck onto the podium. On the other hand, only eight little syringes were classified today. What is the world coming to? Eraser Heads from Ruler Issue 104 was written by Jean-Baptiste Moutet, translated by Richard Abraham and read by Phil Wright. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.